welcome to 1951 Down Place, your monthly Hammer Films discussion podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Derek, also known as Brother D. We're going to be joined by Scott and Casey here in a bit. Before we get into the show, though, I want to welcome you to our debut episode. This is episode number one, and we're excited to get into this. Now, our website can be found at www.1951downplace.com. That's 1951downplace.com. Com. Now, as this is the first episode, we wanted to introduce ourselves to you guys. So we're going to do a top five Hammer Film countdown. We're going to do a roundtable back and forth. Scott's got his top five. I've got my top five in case he's got his. Also, we're going to talk about one of the biggest Hammer Films of all, Horror of Dracula. Now, we recorded a lot of this episode about a month and a half, two months ago. And some things have happened since then. First of all, in the discussion of Horror of Dracula, we make comment to there being an extended cut, or maybe some deleted scenes, or maybe a trimmed image here or there for the Japanese release of Horror of Dracula. Turns out some of that film may have been discovered or recovered at this point. If we find anything else about it concrete, we'll talk about it here in the show in the future. But I think the biggest thing that's happened between the time that we've recorded and the time that we're launching is that we've lost screenwriter and director Jimmy Sangster. He wrote Horror of Dracula as well as countless other films, including a lot that Scott, Casey, and I mentioned in our top five. So we wanted to take a moment to just recognize Jimmy Sangster and thank him for all the work that he's done for Hammer Films. At the end of the show, we'll have our contact information. We hope you enjoy 1951 Down Place. start talking about the movie that we're going to talk about in this debut episode of 1951 Down Place, we thought maybe y'all would like to know just who we are. Now, if you listen to a horror podcast or even a Disney podcast, our voices, our names might sound familiar, but we don't talk about Hammer on those shows very much. And we want to talk about our background with Hammer, our interest with Hammer, and just kind of chat it up a little bit before we talk about our film. I'll lead it off. I am Derek. You might also know me as Brother D. I am the producer and co-host of Mail Order Zombie. You can find us over at www.mailorderzombie.com. Anyway, uh, Hammer Films. I've been a fan of Hammer for a long time. I first discovered Hammer, I'd say, early 90s when I was working at a blockbuster video store because that's what film geeks did back in the day. And we were doing an event with a local radio station. We had a DJ come in who loved horror movies. So he and I talked about horror films a lot, put in Frankenstein, Dracula, the Universal films for the in-store monitors. And then he asked me if I knew anything about Hammer films because he was a huge fan. And unfortunately, at that point, I didn't really know much about them. I knew of them, but I hadn't really watched any of them. For me, Frankenstein was Karloff, Dracula was Lugosi, and so on. So later that week, he comes in with a handful of VHS tapes, and they were recorded in the SLP mode. So we had six hours of movies on each one of these tapes, and they were nothing but the Frankenstein and Dracula films. And I took them home and devoured them, watched them one right after the other, right after the other. And after that, I was hooked. I wish I could remember that radio DJ's name because he introduced me to a whole different kind of horror film, and I'm forever grateful for it. (laughs) Sounds like a good start with the VHS tapes. I think many a movie geek started with boxes full of VHS. Oh, yeah, and, you know, they're all crammed onto the one tape, so you get, like, three movies per tape. You know, and the sound quality is probably not the best. The picture quality is not the best, but, you know, you don't care. You're watching these movies that you've never seen before. It's like... 
this weird kind of cinematic archaeology where you're digging through this stuff to find these films that you just fall in love with. I still and every have the one of them still has the uh, Cinemax logo that pops up before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I still have boxes of VHS tapes. Oh, I've got a shelf of them. One of these days, I'm going to dump them down to DVD, but I think I even have a VHS of horror of Frankenstein back there. So, you know what? The only VHS tapes I have left right now in my collection, and they're stored away up in a closet in a box, is the original, very first season when it was on public access of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yep, I have all of the those. The KTMA episodes. Yep, I have all those on tape. Has MST3K ever done a hammer film? Wasn't Moon Unit Zero or something? Ah, Moon Base Zero. Moon Base Zero, yes. I think Moon Unit Zero is a Zappa child. (laughs) (laughs) It's either that or an 80s video game. I'm not sure which. My name's Casey Criswell. You've uh, heard me on the Bloody Good Horror Podcast before. I'm also a writer and a blogger. I had my own site at cinemafromage.com. I've been writing for the last four or five years at Bloody Good Horrors. So I am the what they refer to as the friendly PR bear. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been my intro there. My introduction to Hammer started back in the early 90s as well, where unlike Brother D, who worked at started out at the Blockbuster Video, I myself started out at a store called Onkey Music, which was the small town version of Suncoast Video, same company and okay. everything. So we had stacks and stacks of, and I was the movie guy there as far as keeping the VHS tapes and whatnot. And I was the only one that paid attention to what was in the horror section because otherwise it was fairly small. But coming watching movies come through there every once in a while, I'd catch odd things. So you know, like with Christopher Lee's face popping up on the cover or Peter Cushing stuff like that. And so I had just a matter of. Oh, that looks interesting and grabbing it. And pretty soon I got sucked in. I also worked for a Suncoast at one point. So, yeah, I think I remember. Yeah. Nice. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so I was doubly film geek. So, yeah. And when I was at Suncoast, I was also the horror guy. My small town growing up, uh, my small town was small enough that we didn't have a blockbuster. They probably didn't have one until about 2001. Mm. Yeah, where I grew up, we didn't have blockbusters either. And they probably don't have them now either. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess uh, I wanted to go last because I have the least experience with Hammer. This is uh, Scott, and you probably know me also as Need a Nickname Scott on uh, Mail Order Zombie. I'm the news guy there. But I also run a Disney podcast with my wife, uh, Disney Indiana, that we just passed our three-year mark. And my experience with horror is a lot less than the two of these guys. I'm familiar with uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, but not through the Hammer Horror films. Christopher Lee, my first experience with him was uh, Scaramanga and The Man with the Golden Gun. And Peter Cushing, my first experience with him would have been Star Wars. So a few years ago, I started really getting into podcasts, and I started listening to the B-Movie cast who started uh, talking about Hammer films. And that was really my first experience with them and wanting to track down a couple of the films that they showed. Plus, I attend uh, something called the B-Movie Celebration in Franklin, Indiana, where I got to see uh, the Quatermass films for the first time and fell in love with those. 
So I'm coming at this at a completely different angle than the two of you guys. I know very little about Hammer films, and I'm eager to learn and interested to see a lot of these films for the first time. Awesome. Yeah, I think Hammer is uh, one of those studios, one of those names that when you just say the name of the studio, you immediately think, oh, well, gothic horror. It's one of those things that, like, say, Universal, you know, they, they immediately bring something to mind. And uh, you know, I just love Hammer. And when you started telling me that you were interested in some Hammer films, Scott, I just got excited. It's like, yeah, I get to geek out about Hammer with someone, somebody, so it's great. I, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to learning from you guys. You guys obviously have seen a lot more of these films than I have. I know one of the things that we are going to be doing later is coming up with a top five list, and that's going to be tough for me because I've seen five. So, actually, that might make it easy. That actually may make it easier for myself. I am mostly familiar with Hammer as far as the horror goes. As Derek said, uh, you know, gothic horror—that's my whole experience with it. So, I'm looking forward to actually once we start diving into some of the other aspects of the Hammer Studios with the science fiction and the adventure movies and stuff like that. So just to get the whole picture of the studios. So definitely they've done a lot more than just horror. That's what they're known for. But I mean, they did some Robin Hood films. They did some comedies. They did a lot of film noir stuff. So I, I'm also excited to get into the non-horror stuff. But I mean, come on, Hammer. Yeah. We got to talk horror right of off the bat. So when we we're talk- definitely going to talk horror. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> um, but I do. Th- I do want to point out, though, just for listeners, since this is our first episode and we're digging in here, just want you to be ready to to not expect horror every month we're going to be covering every aspect of hammer studios that we can get our fingers into definitely definitely now scott mentioned our top five and i think that might be a good segue kind of get into that head over to our website at 1951downplace.com and there's going to be a section where you can click and find out what the host top five Hammer films are. Now, as this show continues and as we all discover new Hammer films and that sort of thing, that top five might change. And that's where we're going to make updates uh, to those lists on our website. You can find that over there. There's also a link to our Facebook page over there as well, and you can find us online that way. I definitely know that uh, host top five list of mine will be changing a lot. And, and I definitely struggled with mine as well, trying to come up with what that fifth film was. And then as soon as I figured out what it was, I realized it had to go somewhere other than number five. So I just had to reshuffle the whole thing. I did that this morning before we started recording. So, <laughs> Well, shall we dive into it, kind of do a round robin? I think we should. Scott, you uh, went last for the introduction. Why don't you kick us off with the top five? Well, as I said earlier, I've only seen five Hammer films. I know that's probably not a very good uh, pedigree to come into doing a Hammer podcast, so my list is going to be more heavily sci-fi based, as my number five is the Quatermass Experiment. Got to see that one after picking it up at a horror convention. And uh, really enjoyed that film. I've been a bigger fan of sci-fi films in my life than horror films. Horror films, to me, just over the last few years. So I was really looking forward to it after seeing uh, some of the other films, the Quatermass films, seeing the whole collection. And this would be my number five. This might be a good time to point this out as well. A lot of these films had different titles when they were released in the U.K. versus in the U.S. The Quatermass Experiment was released in the U.S. as The Creeping Unknown. So you might find it as The Creeping Unknown here in the States uh, if you're looking to pick up any of these movies and watch them for yourself. Casey, what film would come in at your number five?
All right, my number five actually ties into what I'll reveal as my number two film, because there's in the Hammer horror tradition, there's a bit of a loose trilogy that uh, floats through a couple of their vampire flicks. Mm -hmm. So my number five right now is Twins of Evil starring Peter Cushing. Mm -hmm. The biggest reason is it's uh, you get to see a nice change of pace for Peter Cushing as far as characters go. Normally, he's kind of our hero. We could, you know, we've seen him as the vampire slayer and everything else. Here, he's got a darker turn. He's a little more evil, although not necessarily full-out evil. And it just plays well with the, the idea of witch burning and all that good stuff and since we're talking about hammer studios a big part is the hammer glamour side of it the uh starlets the cast in there and the twins that are in the twins of evil are quite lovely ladies witch burning and all that good stuff <laughs> 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 no nah, dude you're right peter cushing is amazing he's my well, he's my favorite actor period i mean i you put peter cushing in something and i'm gonna watch it and i enjoy everything that he does Twins of Evil is fantastic. It's not on my top five, although I suspect you and I, Casey, are going to have some crossover and some overlap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my number five, given my zombie background with Mail Order Zombie, shouldn't be a surprise. It is Hammer's only zombie film, The Plague of the Zombies from 66, directed by John Gilling. I love this film. Yeah, it gets a little hammy. Yeah, it gets a little cheesy. But I also think it's got one of the most terrifying nightmare sequences when it comes to seeing zombies come out of the grave. And I'm pretty convinced that if a little film called Night to the Living Dead didn't come out a couple years later, The Plague of the Zombies would have set the tone for what zombie films were for a little while at least. I think it's a fantastic film. I love the music. I love the performances. The only thing that I would have liked a little bit better is if Peter Cushing himself had turned up in the film. Everything's better with Peter Cushing. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'm going to have to go with my number four with a film that I actually got to see at the B-Movie Celebration a couple years ago, and that's uh, 1960's The Brides of Dracula. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Now, like I said, my knowledge is limited, uh, but I did get to see this one at a drive-in theater uh, in Franklin, Indiana, with a double bill with uh, George Romero's The Crazies. Oh, man. That would have been wow. fantastic to see. Yeah. <laughs> this was probably, the well, I know this was the first Hammer horror film that I saw. And now it does not have um, Christopher Lee, but it does have Peter Cushing. Um, mm-hmm. as Van Helsing and I really dug his performance this was uh, like I said probably the second movie I've seen him after being in Star Wars so it was a lot of fun to watch my wife Tracy and I got to see it she enjoyed it as well so it was a, a neat first um, Hammer Horror film to watch yeah it is a good place to jump in oh yeah I'm, I'm going to hold off on saying anything about it because uh, well it turns up on my list later so <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, my number four is 1972's Vampire Circus, which I don't think is going to be a big surprise to everybody because it is a really good Hammer flick. To me, Vampire Circus is a showcase of exactly what Hammer Studios can do to make their own settings and make the atmosphere come alive because it really feels different than just about any movie you've seen. <laughs> yes, it is. It is a, it's a fun one. I enjoy that one a lot as well, and it's got such an awesome Blu-ray release right now. That Blu-ray release that came out yeah. 
Fantastic. I was fortunate enough to be on the B-Movie cast back in January to talk about this movie with Vince and Mary and Nick and all them. Uh, Vampire Circus is awesome. And it's, it's a departure from their typical vampire stuff, but it still is that costume drama. It's on your list. I'm, I'm just, sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're right ahead. But I mean, no, you're exactly right. I mean, there's, it is a departure for them as far as the vampire stuff. And it's just really, especially when you look at Hammer's output, it's a unique movie in the own Hammer stable as well. So mm-hmm. it really makes it stand out. And my understanding is that uh, the new Hammer they're doing some novels and novelizations and that sort of thing. And my understanding is that Vampire Circus is lined up to be released as a novel. There's a novelization of it coming. I don't know much more about it other than it might be coming. I don't know who's writing it or whatever, but I think it might be an interesting read, too, to kind of see more of that world. Because it's just a little different than what we see in the Dracula films. Yes. Well, my number four is probably an example of one of these things is not like the others. It is not a costume drama. It's not a pseudo-gothic horror film. It is Fear in the Night from 1972, written and directed by Jimmy Sangster. It's a contemporary film. It's got Joan Collins and Peter Cushing. It's such a good film. This one was released as part of the 21 disc ultimate hammer collection released over in the uk as part of a box set and it's about a a couple a young woman who marries somebody who's working for kind of like a private school a private boys college where peter cushing is the headmaster and just some things start happening along the way that just aren't quite right is the woman losing her mind is she being attacked by somebody who's the dude with the missing arm you know there's (laughs) uh (laughs) there's some great imagery in this film. I mean, the movie opens up with a dangling corpse from a tree. A guy had hung himself in front of the school. So, I mean, the movie opens with that. Sangster's direction is pretty spot on in this, and I would like to know more about Sangster, the director, as opposed to just Sangster, the writer, because I think Sangster, as a director, had a firm grip on what he wanted to do with this film. And what's interesting about this film for me is that it didn't even develop in-house. A lot of Hammer films were developed in-house. This one, Sangster wrote outside of Hammer, sold it to somebody else, that didn't work out, so he ended up bringing it back to Hammer under the condition that he got to produce and direct. And I think it's a wonderful film, and I highly recommend it. Very nice. Very nice. I'm looking forward to seeing some of these films that you guys have mentioned. And I'd like to make a small correction to my list before we start getting emails uh, already. Uh, Quatermass 2 is Enemy from Space. My number three is the first Quatermass film, or Quatermass Experiment with an X, uh, from 1955. That's the first one. I just really enjoy Brian Dunleavy's performance as Quatermass in these films. And I was blown away seeing this the first time. It's got a lot more of a story than most uh, 50 science fiction films that you see. It was more engaging than just, you know, irradiated ants or anything like that that most of the films that you saw. So that would be my number three is Quatermass Experiment. I don't have a lot of experience with the Quatermass films, so I'm excited to dive into those as we continue with the uh, with this podcast. Yeah, so. definitely. Me too, because the only one I've seen is Quatermass in the Pit, and it was a great flick, so I'm definitely looking forward to checking out the rest of them. Mm-hmm. 
Now, let's move on to my number three, which I think Derek's going to agree with me here on where I lay it on this movie. It's one of my favorite Hammer flicks. It is the cheesiest, most manly man macho movie of all of the Hammer flicks. Captain uh-huh. Kronos Vampire Hunter. Horse Jansen is awesome. Yes. <laughs> Captain Kronos, it did not do very well when it was first released, but it's picked up one hell of a cult following. It's also my number three. 1974, directed by Brian Clemens. Dude, Captain Kronos. This should have been a franchise. Oh, it should have. It's the perfect movie. When you want to think of over-the-top cheese B-movie, this Captain Kronos is like the epitome of that. It's just some of the stuff in there makes me laugh out loud so hard, but it still tells the full story. It's just the character is so over-the-top. I love it. (laughs) Yes, Captain Kronos going from town to town, fighting evil wherever he finds it. (laughs) with his hunchback assistant and uh, kind of doing a little bit of the James Bond thing, picking up some pretty women in every town he goes to. It's fun. Including Carolyn Monroe. Yes, Carolyn Monroe in this is fantastic as well. And she's not just eye candy. I mean, she actually serves a, right. a part of the plot. This is a fun... Scott, have you seen this yet? No, I have not. You'll get a laugh out of it. I think you'll like it. <laughs> it's fun. It's exciting. There's some great sword play. Yeah, and it is a vampire flick. Obviously, it's Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, but this movie is more of an adventure movie than anything, mm-hmm. oh, at least in my book, because it's all about the sword play and posturing. There's some great visuals. Just type in Captain Kronos in Google and do an image search, and you're going to find that image of Kronos holding the sword in front of his face with the blade blocking out his eyes. I love that visual. That's just so awesome. <laughs> it's it's hard not to gush like a little fanboy about Captain Kronos because it's just so fun. <laughs> I, I, I'm now looking forward to seeing that one. Moving to my number two, uh, we'll have to go with the first, uh, well, it was called Dracula when it was released in the UK, or Horror of Dracula when it was released over here from uh, 1958, the first Dracula film, which I know we're going to talk about more uh, later on in the episode. Wow, what can I say about this film? It just was incredible. I really liked uh, John Van Essen as Jonathan Harker. Mm -hmm. I thought he was really good. And what happened to him early on, it just kind of surprised me because it's, it, you know, they were kind of building him up as it seemed like to be as a more major character. And the first time I saw it, just, it just, you know, I was taken back how what happens to him. But then Peter Cushing comes in to take that role, you know, that role in the film. And just, I forgot who Jonathan Harker was very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to hold off on saying too much about that, but I agree. It's a great film. Uh, and, and you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so, Casey, what makes your number two? Going back to the vampire genre, it stars Peter Cushing as well, but it's also uh, stars the redheaded goddess Ingrid Pitt in Vampire Lovers. This movie is, well, you know what? I'm not going to lie. This movie features heavily Ingrid Pitt running around topless, and for that, I love it. <laughs> We're just going to throw it out there. But the movie, it actually tells a good story, too. Now, this is the movie that ties into Twins and Evil that actually makes loosely the uh, part of the Karnstein trilogy. This would be the first film of it. And there's some good lore going on here with the, with the family 
and something different from Dracula. It's the similar to Dracula, but it's another family that's gone through a vampire plague throughout the decades and whatnot. And this is the first start of it. So this movie also for me is was my first introduction to, that was a blatant show of how much Hammer likes to throw in skin into their horror films. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, let's be honest. They're especially late 50s, early 60s. They really started to throw in a lot of the very attractive young women. And I mean, we love it for that. But I, I think it would be a mistake to say that that's all these things were. There's still so much more than, oh, right. than that. And Ingrid Pitt brings so much to the screen in that film. <laughs> no pun yeah. intended. But she does bring a lot <laughs> to the screen. And, and I mean, she's a very strong character. And it's... It's a good film. The fact that she could do such dramatic films completely butt naked, and she could do such dramatic acting in that and whatnot, it's really kind of at the time made her stand out more than everybody. Because, but in the in the seventies and whatnot, if you were doing topless films, you were nine times out of ten more of an airhead type character and whatnot, not something strong and evil and powerful. You were helpless. So that was kind of a nice turn on that whole trope. So my number two, it's a sequel, and I've also talked about this on the B-Movie cast with Vince and them, The Revenge of Frankenstein from 58. It's a Terrence Fisher joint, and I, I love this film. This is one of my favorite sequels of all time as well. I'm a huge Frankenstein guy. I love the Frankenstein story. If I had to pick one of the classic horror monsters, it would be Frankenstein. And I like what Hammer did with Frankenstein. And that was they made Peter Cushing the character. I mean, it really took the approach. This is a film about Frankenstein the man, not Frankenstein the monster. And in The Revenge of Frankenstein, you have this mix of hero slash villain that is doing these horrible things to these people to do these incredibly selfish scientific experiments at the expense of the people that he's using to, to harvest parts from. I'm a big fan of this film. I think it's a little underrated because it is, well, it's just a sequel, but I'm a big fan of this one and it is my number two. My number one, this one even if I've seen some other ones, it's going to be hard to knock this one off of its perch for me. And it's uh, Five Million Years to Earth or Quatermass in the Pit. I got to, nice. see, I got to see this film again at the B-Movie Celebration, a 35mm print of it, and it is absolutely awesome. Oh, my God, Scott, you're <laughs> killing me with all this. I saw it on the big screen. I saw it in a drive-in. Dude, um, you may not have seen very many Hammer films, but that more than makes up for it. This, I, I agree. What I really, really like about this film, uh, now it has a different actor playing Quatermass. It's Andrew Keir, different from the first two movies. But the real star of this film is James Donald, who plays uh, Dr. Matthew Rodney. He is very, very good. He actually uh, is in one of my all-time favorite movies all, all over, and that's The Bridge Over the River Kwai. He shows up in that film, and... When I went to see this uh, at the celebration, I didn't know anything about it. And Nick from the B-Movie cast said, let's go see this movie. I'm like, okay. So I went with him, and wow, I was glad I did. One of the best sci-fi movies, um, downtown London, they're building a new subway station, and they uncover a crashed alien ship that had been buried under London, and then London had been built up around it. 
like I said, it's it's not just my favorite Hammer film. It's one of my all-time favorite films. Just I just love this film. Uh, that's my Quatermass in the Pits. My only exposure to the Quatermass films, and I mean, it was pretty captivating from beginning to end. So that was an exciting one. And good music too. That's a lot of fun music in it. Oh yeah, that's the top of my list. Casey, what do you have there? All right, my number one's not too far off from Derek's number two. I myself am a Frankenstein guy. Mm-hmm. I love Frankenstein, and I've always I've already said I love Peter Cushing. So for me, my number one is Frankenstein Created Woman. I love this film. It is so well made. When you watch a Hammer Frankenstein flick versus the Universal Frankenstein flicks, which I've already said I love them. I'm not knocking them at all. When you think of the Universal Frankenstein flicks, you think of the monster. With the Hammer films, thanks to Cushing, when you think Frankenstein, you think Peter Cushing is Baron Frankenstein. I mean, it's just a whole different focus on the movie, and they do it perfectly. We get to see how little regard he has for human life. He's focused completely on science. Uh, Even the science that they hint at in here is pretty mind-blowing and exciting. And it's got Susan Denberg in it, which is nothing to shake a stick at either. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a well-formed package, no pun intended. That was their fourth Frankenstein film. So this was the fourth time Cushing uh, donned the scrubs to play Frankenstein. And yeah, you're right. As the films progress, he just gets more and more buried into that character. And you can't help but watch him do these things that would well have villagers running after him if it was a universal film you know and you know and you watch this but he gets so deep into these characters into the character dr baron frankenstein though that when you're watching it it's clear the horror has nothing to do with the dead person he's brought back to life and is stumbling around the castle you're terrified by the doctor himself because of his complete disregard for life Mm -hmm. but what is he going to do next yeah 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 he put together this dead thing whatever but now what's he gonna do you know yeah agreed Agreed. All right, so my number one was already mentioned earlier by Scott. I love Brides of Dracula. Love it. I'm a huge fan of Brides. I know it doesn't have Christopher Lee, but it's got Peter Cushing doing his best Van Helsing, I felt. Oh, yeah. Huge fan of this film. Another Terrence Fisher directed production. Came out in 1960, so that was a couple years after... Dracula or the horror of Dracula. I think this movie is made all the better by not having Christopher Lee in it. Because what it does for me is it kind of expands the Hammer vampire universe. I don't think anybody's ever really considered or even believes that all the vampire films, you know, all the films take place in the same world, like a comic book or whatever, you know. Twins of Evil doesn't take place in the same world as, you know, the Dracula films. But what Brides of Dracula does for me is it expands Hammer's take on what vampires can be. Dracula's not the only vampire running around out there. There are other things out there. And Van Helsing has to stop him. And I love his turn as Van Helsing here. Just as the Frankenstein films by Hammer are about Frankenstein the man, a lot of these Dracula films are about Van Helsing the vampire hunter. And I love the way he destroys the vampire at the end. Absolutely love that. I'm a big fan for coming up with clever ways to destroy a vampire. And I love the bit at the end with... Well, you know, I'm dancing around it like, you know, we don't want to give spoilers away, but this movie's... 40 years old <laughs> i love how he just he jumps on that windmill blade and turns it to make the shadow of the cross that shines down on the oh yeah on the, i love that <laughs> and 
I mean, this is a Van Helsing who does get bit by a vampire, but he's so badass, it doesn't phase him. He just cauterizes the wound and moves on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's Van Helsing, the superhero right there for me, and I love this movie. My number one. And like I said, we'll make sure these are on our website. And as we continue with the show, if there are any changes that we need to make as we go, we will definitely do so, and we'll let you guys know when that happens. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. So even though Hammer's been around since the 30s and they've done a lot of different kinds of films and Frankenstein was probably their first foray into horror proper, when you think Hammer, you can't help but think Christopher Lee as Dracula. Uh, in the documentary Hammer Horror, A Fan's Guide, it's stated that Dracula is the crystallization of what is powerful about Hammer films. So for our first episode, we're taking a good hard look at Dracula, also released as Horror of Dracula, starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, directed by Terrence Fisher. The movie starts off with uh, Jonathan Harker arriving at the castle. What was the actual castle name? It wasn't Castle Dracula. No, they didn't call it Castle Dracula. But before that even starts, there's that opening sequence where the camera's just kind of moving through the castle and it's the opening titles. Oh, yes. And it, it finally ends up on Dracula's coffin. That's when they show the title of the film and then they have the blood dropping on it. Right, which signaled, I think, a definite change. 
in what Dracula films were going to be from that point on. You got that loud, bombastic music, this kind of pseudo-gothic thing, and then the blood splatters, and you're like, well, okay, this is something totally new. Well, the castle is near Klausenberg in Mm -hmm. Germany, and Harker is posing as the new librarian for the castle to take on a new job to actually move in there and uh, work with uh, Dracula and maintaining his library. Dracula greets him, takes him up to his room, where he also sees uh, a picture of Jonathan Harker's fiance, and ends up locking him in the room, which is, you know, the first sign to me of, um, I may not want to be around here anymore. But uh, we learned <laughs> that um, he's not really there to be the librarian, he's there to kill Dracula. He, he finds uh, not only Dracula's resting place, but also this woman that he met earlier who first off begs him for help to try to get her out of there but she turns out to be a vampire herself and succeeds in biting Harker then Harker finds the crypt and ends up killing Dracula's girlfriend kept woman whatever she is (laughs) 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 which uh, basically pisses off Dracula and Dracula takes out Harker and then we're introduced to Peter Cushing trying to figure out what happened to his friend. What I like about the opening is that it starts out like, despite the blood splatter, it does start to kind of go back to maybe the original Dracula in terms of the novel, because it's a guy reading, it's a narration, and the original novel was a collection of letters. So even though we got this blood dropping all over the coffin, maybe this is going to be a little bit more true to the book than what we've seen before, because it is kind of epistolary. It is this guy reading a diary or a letter. But then, like you said, nope, he's not a librarian. He's trying to kill Dracula, and it just goes way off track. I just watched this for the first time recently, and I knew Peter Cushing was in the film. And I'm watching the first 20 minutes or so, and I'm like, who's this Harker guy? Where's Cushing? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. That leads perfectly into what I was going to say, too, because they do a good job. It's a good misdirection that they set up here, and they do it pretty expertly because you're watching this. And at first... You, you, when we're first introduced to Harker and we're listening to his narration, he sounds pretty nonplussed by the whole thing. This woman he's talking about, he's not even mentioning the fact until later that he's there to try and destroy Dracula. So he's walking around, and you think, he, and as a viewer, you're thinking he's actually there to be the librarian or whatever he's hired on to do. And then this woman comes to us, telling him, oh, help me, he's evil and he's torturing me and all this stuff, you need to save me. And, you know, and it seems a little weird that Harker's looking at her like, okay. He's pretty nonplussed about the whole thing. But then you find out later he's nonplussed behind the whole thing because he's actually there to wreak some havoc himself. And he knows fully what's going on. It's a nice twist on the expectations. And I think it still works for somebody who's not overly familiar with the Dracula films from Hammer. Like what happened to Scott. It definitely works in terms of a misdirection. And you don't really know what's going to happen. But it's so expertly done you don't care because you're just enjoying the film. Yes, because uh, John Van Essen as Harker is really good. He definitely is. And all this stuff makes a great build-up to when we finally get to see Cushing enter the fray, so to speak. To me, there was a huge build-up. We, we're going through this opening for the first 25 to 30 minutes or whatever, and then all of a sudden, boom, here comes Cushing, and you feel he feels larger than life when he finally comes on screen because you've been waiting for him for so long. Yes, I love the scene when he first gets there and he's in that little inn and he's he's trying, yeah. to, trying to get them to tell him information and nobody in the town wants to tell him anything because they're all afraid of Dracula. Yeah, and he knows fully well what's going on too because he, so he's just egging him on. He's like, yeah, what's with all the uh, garlic flowers over the window, huh? Yes. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
What are you afraid of? I don't understand you. But why all these garlic flowers? And over the window? And up here? They're not for decoration, are they? I don't know what you're talking about. I think you do. And I think you know something about my friend. He came here with a purpose, to help you. We haven't asked for any help. You need it all the same. I liked the scene there in the um, in the inn, the, the innkeeper basically saying, you've ordered a meal, I'm going to give you your meal, and then you go. I'm not telling you anything. And then it turns out that his daughter was friends with Harker and gives him some information that he needs to learn more about what happened. Which was actually Harker's diary that the narration was coming from in the beginning of the movie, too, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That whole scene with the innkeeper I thought was funny just because it was a little overdramatic. You know, and he tells him, it's my duty to serve you a meal when you order a meal. It's like, okay, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Castle Dracula is somewhere here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. Yeah, apparently there wasn't a uh, we-have-the-right-to-review-service sign in the window when he walked in. So. <laughs> well, he had shirts, shoes, and, and socks on, so they couldn't... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's safe to say once we get through this part of it, through that opening, and once we get through the uh, introduction to Cushing and Van Helsing, it's close to on par with the... Uh, Original with the universal version of Dracula as far as story-wise goes. Yeah, we do kind of get back on track. Well, the, the one thing that I found interesting, and it's been a while since I've seen the universal Dracula, but doesn't Van Helsing not show up till near the end of that film? It's been a long time since I've seen the, the Lugosi Dracula as well, so I'm not sure, yeah. but yeah, he's not <laughs> he's as not, prominent a figure. The impression I get from the Dracula film from Universal is that he just kind of blundered his way into the whole thing. Not like goofy, you know, right. but he, <laughs> he just kind of wanders his way into the story. And even though he's the one that figures out that Lugosi as Dracula is a vampire, it almost seems kind of accidental. Whereas in yeah. Hammer's take, Van Helsing is a force with which to be reckoned, and he already knows what's going on, and he's deliberately seeking out this thing that he's going to destroy to save the entire world at one point, he says. I think Cushing's Van Helsing is more action. I mean, he's tracking Dracula down and you know sending Harker in. He's going in and actually attacking him on his home turf, basically. He's provoking him, yeah. where in the Universal one, it was like, okay... Dracula is causing havoc, and then Van Helsing has to come in to clean it up. To me, he's not as much of on the offensive. So, I mean, Harker is no more. Van Helsing deals with dispatching his former friend and sending him off and freeing his soul. And he just kind of leaves after he deals with that. I mean, there's this, this confrontation. Is there even a confrontation originally with Van Helsing and Dracula at this point? There really isn't until the end, right? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the castle's empty. He goes back to tell Harker's fiance and her family that Harker is dead and is very vague about the whole damn thing. And this is where we get to meet Michael Goff in the film, who has this permanent expression of disbelief the entire time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, you can't believe a damn thing that's happening, even when he's in it. He's still grabbing yeah. his head and making these eyes or grabbing his chest. And it's like, <gasps> you know, where he turns around and faces the wall because he can't handle seeing what he's going to see. It does get a little, I don't know if melodramatic is the word. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen Van Helsing and Harker doing their thing as opposed to Van Helsing and Arthur teaming up. Because Van Helsing is clearly used to working with a partner. It's just that that partner used to be Harker, not right. you know, Michael Goff. <laughs> 
Well, to, <laughs> to, to address your point about Van Helsing not uh, seeing Dracula when he first gets to the castle, doesn't he get passed by a hearse on the way in? So we're led to assume that Dracula has left. And to me, uh, as a vampire hunter, that would have been a big clue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah, because it didn't even have a driver, did it? I, we didn't see one. Because he went later by so quick. He, yeah, he pretty much yeah. ran him off the road. Yeah, I didn't see one. But later yeah, on in the he movie, just stopped to watch him go. You yeah. think he'd say, hmm, well, we should probably check that out. <laughs> but at that point, he didn't know Harker needed his attention as well and he did have a responsibility to his friend and his partner yeah well he had a good idea though going in that he was gonna have to do something i think because he'd been missing for 10 days yeah i really like the setup here though they really went a long way to set up van helsing as a character and it's it works really well because as we mentioned before it you know like with brides of dracula and stuff it's a character that travels onto other films doing his vampire slaying thing so it really brings the Van Helsing character to life and makes it into something big almost in a sense like a superhero I, I can't see anybody but Cushing playing this character in, in this point in his career I mean he's not the older Cushing that Scott and I and, and you saw from Star Wars you know he's a, a vital capable yeah, person yeah. He, he's a little bit older but he's not somebody who might need a cane later on off screen I mean he's able to get it done and, and do what he needs to do then he's probably my age now a little bit <laughs> older needing a cane <laughs> <laughs> So what you're saying, Derek, is that you're knocking a Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing portrayal. <laughs> of all the things in that film to knock, I don't know if Hugh Jackman's the only thing that needed some attention. Yeah. I, I wasn't even going to acknowledge that film myself. Yeah, but. thanks. You know, every time you mix, every time you speak of it, Casey, you give it power. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Helmut, but I really cannot tell you anything more about how he died. Cannot or will not. Whichever you wish. Dr. Van Helsing, I am not at all satisfied. You suddenly appear and tell us that Jonathan Harker is dead. And yet you will not tell us where or how he died. I find it extremely suspicious. So after Van Helsing has explained that Harker is dead, and again, he's very vague about the whole thing, Michael Goff as Arthur isn't putting up with it, doesn't want Van Helsing in the home, kicks him out, even though they could really use his help because Arthur's sister who was Harker's fiancée. Uh, Lucy. She's, well, become the replacement for the woman that Harker destroyed. You know, she is now being visited nightly by Dracula. She's played by Carol Marsh. And every night, it's such an interesting scene because we don't see as much flesh as we see in later Dracula films or Hammer films. But yeah. it still felt invasive and, and sexual and sexualized the way that she was preparing her bedroom, opening up the window, laying down and making herself available to Christopher Lee to come in and take her. And it's a little uncomfortable because she's not, like, again, showing a lot of skin. So it almost feels more invasive and aggressive on the part of the count. You could almost say it's like the what they call like the abused spouse syndrome and whatnot. The people who go through all this rough, you know, this bad traumatic events in the you know in their domestic life and whatnot, but yet they still madly in love with the person and won't do anything to get rid of him, take care of him. She knows that he's making her sick. He knows she knows that it's not a good thing and it's something abnormal. But yet she's opening herself up to it willingly. Yeah, she's totally under his control. And it's at this point when Van Helsing is brought back into the home 
by Arthur's wife, Nina, you know, to get a second opinion because Dr. Seward can't figure out what the hell's wrong with her. She's anemic and she's cold, but can't figure out what's going on. So they bring in Van Helsing for a second opinion. And as Van Helsing is brought back into their life, as an audience, we get to learn how vampires work in the world of Hammer. We get to learn that wooden stakes are bad, garlic's bad, sunlight's bad. They can't really turn into a bat. Yeah. And, and I thought that was an interesting uh, thing to bring up and, and a very deftly handled bit of script writing on the part of Jimmy Sangster. I mean, Hammer couldn't afford to do an animal transformation. So instead of trying to do it, they mention it briefly, say it's impossible, and move on. So I thought it was a nice bit of let's tell the audience how to destroy a vampire so when Van Helsing does it later, it makes sense. And these are the rest of the rules for vampires while we're at it. They did a lot of good things that I would say you call film tricks to show showcase the powers of vampires and whatnot and the effects of vampirism and whatnot in a cheap manner as far as you know production costs and whatnot because for instance when we see harker uh, kill off dracula's kept woman in the castle the first time you see him drive the stake in they don't sh- focus on driving the stake in they show you his shadow in the background hammering the stake in so you don't see that they don't have to make the wound they don't have to make the blood and go or stuff like that and then when they cut to that and then they show him they focus in on his reaction and cut back and they've got a different woman in the casket showing that she's aged now that he's killed mm-hmm. her off taking care of the vampires and stuff like that in turn then they do they also use you know similar tricks in that same scene when you see that sun setting by the shadows on the wall which in a like in a universal sense with more money they would have gone further to showcase that with more effects and whatnot whereas mm-hmm. here they just use a lot of simple shortcuts to show the exact same effects but cheaper and more effective in some sense. I think some of it is an economy of filmmaking. Some of it is because they didn't want to deal with censorship. Whatever yeah. the reason behind it, it works really well. Now, supposedly, Hammer made multiple versions of some of these films. In his essay, The Face of Horror, Derek Hill says that Hammer would make three different versions of their films. That There's one for the UK audience, one for the American audience, and then one for the Japanese audience. The British one was a little bit more tame. The American one's a little bloody. And the Japanese one is extremely over the top with long-held close-ups of the stake being hammered into the vampire's heart. But then I've also heard that debunked and that that's not necessarily true. So whether it's true or not, I like the version that we have now because it works so well. I really liked it too because obviously a person's imagination is better than any special effect that they could really put up there on screen. I know my mind was thinking oh, yeah. what that uh, stake was actually looking like going through there, even though you only saw the shadow. And I'm sure my mind was coming up with something that looked a lot more gory or graphic than anything they could have done at the time. I mean, they even made it with the simple shadow and simple sound effects. They even made it sound like he had to work to get it in yeah. there. You know, mm-hmm. past the rip. It wasn't a simple thing. You know, yep. they, they actually had to break through the sternum and whatnot. You could get the whole sense of it. Agreed. And even just like having the camera tilted or, or placed a little below the coffin so that you can't really see what he's pounding into. You can just see him pounding the stake into something in the coffin. You can see it resist and it takes more than one hit. And, ooh. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> 
So Lucy's succumbing to vampirism. She's becoming Dracula's thrall victim. And Van Helsing recognizes that immediately and prescribes garlic flowers being placed around the room. Not just bulbs of garlic, but like garlic flowers, which I thought was a nice touch because the garlic bulbs would have been a little cliche. So to actually see the plants themselves. But we have those all over the rooms. And, and he also says, let's close up all the windows. Don't let anybody in or don't let the fresh air in. He doesn't say don't let anybody in because that would have been given away yeah. too much. <laughs> and by the way, if a guy in a black cloak shows up, don't let him inside. You know, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Although maybe he should have, because later that night, Lucy uh, is feeling stifled and, and the garlic's driving her crazy. So she has one of the servants remove the garlic and open the windows. And as soon as the servant leaves, and comes Dracula. Yeah. He yep. was just waiting for it. Never mind how much, he st- you know, he stressed to her. Don't, don't do this. Oh, okay. Well, if you say so, we'll get rid of the flowers and open the windows. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and that's the last night that Lucy is alive. I mean, that's finally, he takes her life and they bury her. I guess it was more like a tomb. It wasn't like an underground burial because we find her later wandering around the graveyard and such. But Van Helsing then reveals what he knows to Arthur. Which is one of my favorite scenes of the film. Yeah. Especially early on before Arthur gets there and he's listening to his own recordings and commenting on them. Yes. Talking, mm-hmm. you know, he's basically talking to himself, and it's giving us more information about the world of vampires and everything. And it's done in such a way that I was really buying, and I really enjoyed that scene. Certain basic facts established: one, light. The vampire allergic to light never ventures forth in the daytime. Sunlight fatal. Repeat, fatal. Would destroy them. Two, garlic. Vampires repelled by odor of garlic. Memo, check final arrangements with Harker before he leaves for Klausenburg. Three, the crucifix, symbolizing the power of good over evil. And it really highlights the point that we made before versus, you know, comparing this to the universal version, whereas Brother Van Helsing kind of stumbled into this profession. This showcases in that one simple scene that this is his, you know, life's work. This is what drives him and what keeps him getting up every morning, researching these vampires. He's been doing, you know, he's been researching. He's doing studies and whatnot. It's something that's gone on for years. One, I don't think anybody but Cushing could have pulled that off. I mean, he, it's, he's yeah. acting with himself literally mm-hmm. by listening to the recording. And two, to comment on what you just said, this is what drives him. But Van Helsing's got another life, another side to all this. Because when he says, I'm Dr. Van Helsing, everybody's like, oh, well, yeah, Dr. Van Helsing. He's a reputable doctor. Doctor of what? I mean, <laughs> it's not like you yeah. have a business card that says vampire hunter. He's a well-known, established doctor in the medical or scientific community, but he still has time to become the world's leading expert on vampires as well. And I, I just imagine <laughs> him staying up late, you know, researching the vampire stuff and, and that sort of thing. But then the next morning, he's got to go do his day job. Yeah, <laughs> got to go do his house calls. The whole doctor thing pays the bills, but, you know, hunting vampires is where it's at. <laughs> that's right. That's what drives me. Like you said, that's what keeps him going in the morning. (laughs) So when he brings Arthur in, he asks Arthur if he can use Arthur's dead sister to track Dracula, to use her as a way to guide them to the Count, and Arthur's not having it. I don't know if Arthur really believed what was happening at this point. I mean, the whole thing's pretty absurd anyway, and his facial expressions again, (laughs) he's just got this, like, are you kidding me? Got a look on his face. Yeah, he's still wasn't buying it at this point. Yeah. 
he refuses to let them use his undead sister in this way. And when they find her up and walking around later, maybe even bring in the servant girl's... Was it the servant girl's daughter? I wasn't really clear on the relationship. I was never clear of the relationship of where the little girl came from either. She called him Uncle Arthur at one point, but I thought there was more of a mother-daughter thing between her and the servant girl. Not really clear, but... Bottom line is, little girls wandering around graveyards at night. (laughs) Lucy came to to invite her to come play. And the fact that she's been told Lucy's dead never crosses her mind, apparently. Uh, So she goes plays with Lucy. And and ultimately, if Van Helsing hadn't been involved or or gotten himself involved, that little girl would have been Dracula's next kept woman at some point. Or would have been a midnight snack, depending. Well, I was under the impression that Dracula was almost on a vendetta. He was going after everything that Harker stood for. Yeah, there was a little bit of that because he came after him. So he was taking out his revenge, which is a nice change up from the original, too. Mm -hmm. It's not this. I have loved you from the end. You know, none of this love story stuff. None of this pseudo romanticism. It's a revenge story. They came into Dracula's house and tore it up. So he's coming to your house. Yep. Yeah. And, And he starts knocking off the family members one by one by one. Finally, Arthur and Van Helsing destroy the undead Lucy. And I think this is where Arthur finally starts to accept what's going on until something really severe happens. And then he gets that look on his face again, but only for a second. (laughs) (laughs) And and he starts cursing himself when Dracula's moved on from Lucy. Now to Mina, Arthur's wife and starts doing the same thing with Mina. He does finally give the uh, approval to use his now undead wife to go after Dracula. Now the coffin that you mentioned earlier does come back up. Van Helsing, deduces that if we can figure out where the coffin was going, maybe that will tell us where Dracula's hold up. And this is where it does get a little unclear because like you guys said, or like we talked about, that coffin seemed unattended when it was just tearing down the road. But we learn later when we go to the guard station that there was somebody there who checked in and told them where they were going. I I guess that's what you have to do when you cross a border is just say where you're going and they keep track of it in a big book. Uh, that role of the guard should have been played by Michael Ripper, who is a you know a staple of a lot of these Hammer films, just because he's so kind of goofy and over the top. And that that whole scene, I understand what they were going for, this kind of detective, kind of figure things out, follow the clues kind of thing. But it does have an air of goofiness to it. It didn't take me out of the movie, but it did seem to be a change of pace from this horrific thing that Dracula's doing. And now here's a lighter moment at the guard station. <laughs> <laughs> Hammer did have some weird ways of just changing up the tone of things in odd spots that happens in a lot of their movies. I mean, it's enjoyable. I'm not saying it was distracting. It's just it's a little different and it's a little uh, discordant and maybe that kind of adds to the the sense of uneasiness they were going for in terms of being a horror film. <coughs> I'm afraid that is quite out of the question, sir. Against regulation. All we want to know is where the coffin was going. I cannot give away information without proper authority. This is a matter of great urgency. I am a doctor. I'm sorry, sir. You've got to have permission from the ministry in writing. I have my orders and I must obey them. It is laid down in the government regulations that under no circumstances... Under no circumstances may an unauthorized person be permitted to examine. Of course... In the case of an emergency, we do sometimes make an exception. And seeing this gentleman is a doctor... (coughs) (coughs) When did you say it was, sir? December the 1st. December the 1st. Klausenberg to Karlstadt. Let me see. Here it is. One hearse, one coffin. J. Marks, 
49 Friedrich Stasser, Karlstadt. Well, they, they figure out where the coffin is going, and when they find where the coffin is supposed to be, and here again is another lighter moment with the Undertaker. The coffin's not where the Undertaker said it was supposed to be. So they go back to Arthur's house, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And just as kind of an offhand comment, the servant girl tells everybody, I'm not allowed to go into the basement. You stay and rest and have some wine. I'm sure you need both. Gerda, will you fetch another bottle? Oh, sir, I don't like to. You know what happened last time when I disobeyed Mrs. Homewood's orders? What do you mean? Well, sir, madam told me the other day that I must on no account go down to the cellar. So Van Helsing, without saying anything, just runs out of the room, runs down to the cellar, and finds the empty coffin. I don't know how he got down there, but didn't see Dracula, because when he looks up the stairs, Dracula's at, like, at the top of the stairs, like he was following Van Helsing down. But where was Dracula this whole time then? Like he was just waiting, <laughs> he was like upstairs doing something else, and then saw Van Helsing run downstairs. And But that's the first time you see Cushing and Lee connect. They, they make eye contact, and then Van Helsing gets locked in the cellar. Van Helsing makes a, yeah, a lot of noise, a lot of racket. Finally, they come and let him out while Dracula is... Well, he's going back to his home castle, isn't he, oh, at yeah, this he, point? Yeah, he's he, been found out, so he's he's out of there. Yeah, he runs off into the night heading back to Klausenberg to try to get there before the sun comes up. And it becomes kind of a race against the sun. Van Helsing and Arthur chasing after Dracula. They get back to Dracula's castle. And I love the set of the castle. I love the set design. I love the way the castle looks. And I was so happy that we got back to the castle for the end of the film. I mean, a lot of times yeah. we say these movies are these gothic films, but there's something about Dracula's castle that, I mean, it's not really the sweeping grand gothic architecture. It's angular and it's pointy and it's sharp like yep. Dracula. And yep. I like how the <laughs> castle looks. It's such a wonderful set. And it becomes Van Helsing chasing Dracula around while Arthur is trying to find Mina because Dracula took Mina with him when he left. And Yeah, he was trying we, to bury her. Right. And we get to the final confrontation between Van Helsing and Vampire, and it's awesome. That, I was blown away by the special effects from that scene because, you know, I'm comparing this to other films that are made in the late 50s, the pipe hands on strings type of thing. And... <laughs> <laughs> The quality of the special effects looked way beyond its time. Phil Leakey was the man behind a lot of these effects, and he had worked on the Quatermass films. He'd worked on a lot of other stuff for Hammer. And he really took this approach, and it was mandated by the studios. When you put something on an actor, you can't disfigure the actor. You can't disguise the actor. They still have to be recognizable. And every time he did something to Christopher Lee, you could still tell, yeah, that's Christopher Lee, but look at the makeup, you know? Yep. Yeah. And it's really good. Um, Christopher Lee, from what I understand, kind of struggled a little bit with a lot of the makeup. In a documentary called Grease, Paint, and Gore, Phil Leakey actually tells us that every time he would approach Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee would kind of sigh and roll his eyes and say, haven't you done enough to me already? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know. Well, that kind of became uh, Christopher Lee's view on the role of Dracula period for after a while, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In Jimmy Sangster's autobiography... Do you want it good or Tuesday? Uh, He says, the sets of the movie were great. Christopher Lee was very good, even if he hasn't stopped bitching about the part ever since. So (laughs) (laughs) I I guess he didn't want to be typecast. I don't know if he wanted to distance himself from the Dracula character. I mean, he worked for Hammer afterwards, and he did come back to the character at some point. Yeah. Lee and Hammer had a falling out in general for a few years there, I think over money and what, uh, if I Mm -hmm. remember right. And then they eventually made up and came back. Mm-hmm. But that's why if you look at some of the other 
There's a... Uh, What's the other Christopher Lee Dracula movie that came after this one? It was after the break. That version of Christopher Lee's Dracula is not a whole lot of acting on Christopher Lee's part. It's a whole bunch of flashes of him doing Dracula poses. Yeah, there's one film where he doesn't have any dialogue at all. And is right. that the one you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. He doesn't say a word. And, you know, it's because Christopher Lee was holding out for more money or just kind of being persnickety about the whole thing. Who knows? Uh, I mean, the bottom line is, is that Christopher Lee kind of made this film because he was all over the posters and that sort of thing. And really, it kind of made Christopher Lee, whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Christopher Lee did claim that he had never seen Bela Lugosi's Dracula before he played the Count himself. But I, I really have a hard time believing that he wasn't aware of Bela Lugosi as Dracula. I, I wonder if part of his rejection of the character was because he didn't want to have the same kind of career path that Lugosi had, where he was typecast and kind of pigeonholed into this kind of film. Well, didn't uh, Christopher Lee appear in a Boris Karloff film just like a couple years later? Yeah, I mean, he, he was a horror guy. I mean, he's a horror icon, and I think he embraced that. I just think he didn't want to just be Dracula. Yeah. I mean, and he did The Mummy after this. So it's, you know, he did some of the other monsters for Hammer as well, and then did the Sherlock Holmes film and a few other things. But, yeah. To get to what you were talking about with the destruction of Dracula and the way it looked, again, Phil Leakey's work is amazing in this film. Although the final yeah. destruction is not exactly what Leakey had in mind. In that same documentary, Grease, Paint, and Gore, uh, what Leakey wanted to do was construct a fake body filled with sand and then have a wax face attached to a skull and then put that on top of the body. And then what he would do is put the camera on the wax head that looked like Christopher Lee and then melt it so that you could see the, the face kind of melt away to the skull and then turn on a fan and have the sand blow away and that sort of thing. That, oh, was, wow. that was his intent. And I think that would have been really interesting to see. But the producers and such said, you know, this process would have taken way too long because they would have had to film the entire thing and then go in and do a, a frame removal to make it happen faster than what it was going to look like on film. So ultimately, what we do see in terms of Lee's head falling apart, that was not leaky with somebody else but it works either way oh i thought it was incredible i just mm -hmm. it, it oh, was yeah. so surprising to see something of that quality in a movie from 58 oh yeah fantastic and even the lead up to that the fight between the two of them i mean this is van helsing it down and dirty yep absolutely love and it's, that added what i said before of making van helsing you know just the full character and almost like a superhero in today's sense this was you know just a capstone to it all and Again, a lot of this is Cushing because Cushing brought certain things to the screen that may not have been in the script. I've heard him referred to as hot props Cushing a couple of times in different interviews and documentaries that I've seen where he's always finding something to do. Even if he's just a character that's supposed to be standing there reacting to something, he's always pulling something out of his pocket or doing some little yeah. bit of business with something on set to give him something to do. And it makes the character feel more alive and real and more immersed in the world in which he's in. And then at the end of Horror of Dracula, he was just supposed to pull out a crucifix and call it good. But in an interview that he did with the magazine Little Shop of Horrors back in the 80s, he says that it was actually his idea to not just pull out another crucifix and shove it in Dracula's face. Because at this point in the film, he feels like a crucifix salesman. I've got a crucifix here. i got a crucifix there. You want a crucifix? i got a crucifix. You know, he's just handing them out left and right. <laughs> Whereas at the end of the film, he's like, i got this other idea. There's this movie called Berkeley Square, and I've never seen the film. I'm not really familiar with the reference. But he says that he was inspired by a scene in that film where he takes the candlesticks. And, and that uh. led to him pulling the candlesticks up and making the cross. And now that's an iconic image in itself. 
And it's something that wasn't even in the script, something that Cushing brought to the table. And again, I think that speaks to the investment of Cushing as a professional and and wanting to make the best possible movie. Uh, In fact, there is a series of busts now being released of Christopher Lee's account, Ingrid Pitt, and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. And the pose they chose for Van Helsing is him with the candlestick cross. Nice. And then we have the sand. We see the head kind of break down, and it's all kind of peeling away. It looks kind of burnt up. And then the body does turn to sand, and it blows away. And we see Dracula's ring, and it's the end of the film. I don't know if there's anything to be read into the fact that Dracula dies on the Zodiac wheel on the floor. I don't know if that was just kind of a happy accident. Really, it could be left, uh, as you said, it's really open to interpretation, but I don't know that yeah. there's that much there. I don't think so either. It's just, it happened to be on the floor. I mean, it, all the attention that was paid to the details of the set, I, yeah. I, I don't think it was really intentional. I would be willing to believe that it's just part of the set because the way that Hammer Studios made their set so extravagant, to look and feel like you're actually in that time period instead of being on a set dressed up and look like it. So it seems like it could be a happy accident easily just because it adds to the ambiance of where they're at mm-hmm. in the castle. I love this film. I mean, it's not in my top five, so I guess I don't love it that much. No, it's not true. I love this film. <laughs> <laughs> I love this film, too. It's, uh, it's a good film. You know, the parallels between this and Universal's Dracula are there. Oh yeah. To me, I to me, I enjoy it more when you start getting away from what was obviously Hammer's response to Universal's Dracula, and they get they start playing with the characters more in that world with the Dracula and Van Helsing and stuff like that. That's to me where that's where the real fun starts to happen. I mean, Universal was aware of Hammer at this point. They had somebody checking in with Hammer during the production of The Curse of Frankenstein because if Hammer was going to use the flat top design for the Frankenstein monster. Universal was going to jump all over him with a lawsuit. So Hammer was forced to do something a little bit different. And with Dracula, they they do stick to some of the original themes from the novel, but they, again, did something completely different from the Universal films towards the end, especially. And it's just interesting to see that this is the birth of Hammer's vampire world and see the path that the Dracula films took after that and then the other vampire films took after that. I love it, and I love the music. James Bernard's score, as over-the-top as it sometimes gets, I love it. My favorite part of this film has got to be Cushing's portrayal of Van Helsing. Yeah. He was really, really, really good. I'd heard for years that this is Christopher Lee's, you know, he's Dracula. He's he's the one that's the, the big thing of the show. And I was a little disappointed that he only had, you know, a couple dozen lines in the beginning of the film. And then the rest of the time, he's just kind of hissing or screeching <laughs> or something. Now, he was good. <laughs> he was intimidating. But I think this movie is a showcase more for uh, Van Helsing's character. I mean, in that same interview that Cushing did that I mentioned a second ago, he calls Christopher Lee's performance the, quote, almost definitive portrayal of Dracula. And he's right. But this movie really belongs to Cushing. It really does. Yeah. And you got to wonder, though, just because as much as I love Cushing, but I think that's the power he had as an actor, you got to wonder if that was even intentional when they set out to start filming this movie, that it was going to be a showcase of that, or if it just happened because of the power of Cushing. <laughs> the power of Cushing <laughs> compels you. Yes. <laughs> Potentially. It's just like with Frankenstein, like I mentioned earlier on when we were talking about the top fives, when you think Universal Frankenstein, you think of the monster. When you think of Hammer Frankenstein, you think of Baron Frankenstein. Happy accident, intentional. Bottom line is, without Cushing, this movie wouldn't have worked. Without Cushing versus Lee, this thing wouldn't have worked because they do have a chemistry. And there's that knowing now what we know about Lee and Cushing being best friends and how they used to pal around yeah. that set together, that sort of thing. That one moment where Lee looks down the cellar stairs at Cushing and realizes what 
this person is and what he represents in his world. It's just a split second, but it's a wonderful, powerful moment. And that really kind of sets the whole thing off for me in terms of the Dracula franchise. It's no secret. I'll tell y'all right now. My favorite vampire films from Hammer, my favorite Dracula films from Hammer are the ones that have Cushing as the vampire killer. I mean, I like some of the other Dracula films, but unless Cushing's in the mix, they're not one of my favorites. I mean, I even yeah. like the satanic rites of Dracula because Cushing's in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I'm looking forward to seeing more of Cushing's work. Oh, yeah. I can't wait till we get you on some Frankenstein movies. It's going to be fantastic. And, you know, as soon as this film wrapped production, uh, let's see, the date that I have was January 3rd, 1958. Three days later, Terrence Fisher started production on The Revenge of Frankenstein. <laughs> Nice. So they just kept him busy. They just this was a warehouse, almost a factory, but it never feels rote. It never feels like they're getting bored with what they're doing. It felt like they had a repertoire of cast and crew. And you know, we're done shooting. Take down all the Dracula stuff. Put the Frankenstein stuff back up, and let's get back to work. You know, there was a four-day break between uh, Doctor Jekyll and the Brides of Dracula. So I mean, they just cranked them out, but they never feel boring. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Not to make this the Peter Cushing podcast, but I mean, he's in <laughs> Revenge of Frankenstein and stuff too. So most of these movies, he's taking a four day break and moving into a completely different character. Mm-hmm. The Cushing cast. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it's obviously, it's obvious that the crew enjoy what they're doing if they're going to be able to turn around and produce another worthy movie in, in just a few days. The crew obviously works together well and they enjoy what they're doing. They, they work together well, and they're making money. These movies were so profitable. It got to the point where Hammer was just designing a poster and then showing it to the money men in America and saying, hey, we want to make a movie of this. What do you think? Go for it. Here you go. Then they get back to England, yeah. and they call Jimmy Sangster and like, okay, now you got to write a script. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, that makes it easier to take a four-day break between movies when you're making thousands upon thousands of dollars on top yeah, of it. Yeah, definitely. You know, Horror of Dracula, it's one of the classics. It's one of the standards. It's definitely a must-see as far as uh, Hammer films go. Now, this film has been released on DVD, but not Blu-ray. Is that a correct statement? Hammer Films, the current version of Hammer Films, has mentioned a couple of times, either on Twitter or on their website, that there are plans to get some of these more classic, iconic films on Blu-ray. The problem is, is that Whereas with the Universal films, they were able to distribute the films themselves. So in the 30s and 40s, Universal could put the stuff out and still retain the rights. But in the 50s and 60s and 70s, Hammer wasn't able to distribute the films themselves, especially overseas. So distribution rights were locked up by Warner Brothers, Universal, various companies, which locks up the availability for some of these films for the home market. Uh, There is one movie that I'm really eager to get into called Hands of the Ripper, which is our Jack the Ripper movie. From what I understand, it's never been released on DVD over here, so I had to get my copy over in the UK's version of Amazon and have it sent over. There, There are some films that just aren't available over here. But Dracula, yes, it's on DVD, but it's part of a four movie set and it's real light on special features it has uh, Dracula has risen from the grave taste the blood of Dracula and Dracula AD 1972 it's a good set I mean it's four movies for anywhere from 12 to 18 dollars but yeah unfortunately it's not on Blu-ray yet I would love to see it hit Blu-ray and I would think that with all the interest in Hammer now especially with the new Hammer films doing their thing it would be easier to see some of these movies come out on Blue Phil Nutman at a panel at Crypticon said that it's nice that some of these smaller boutique studios are showing an interest in releasing these things like Synapse and Vampire Circus because they're the ones that have the funds and the resources and the intentions to really focus on creating a nice package. Whereas 
Horror of Dracula kind of gets lost in the Warner Brothers mix. You know, they have bigger projects and properties that they can really exploit and package. So maybe someday we'll see it on Blue. And if it does come out on Blue, we'll talk about it here on 1951 Down Place. Yes. And just uh, to let you know that the four-film DVD set, uh, we'll put that up on our website. Amazon currently has it for eleven forty-nine. Uh, there's also a DVD set called TCM's Greatest Classic Film Collection, Hammer Horror, that has the horror of Dracula. Dracula has risen from the grave, the curse of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein must be destroyed for only $6.39. From what I understand, it's the same print of the film, so you're not really losing anything, just kind of depending on how you want to have it added to your collection, which movies you need to add to your Hammer library. You can pick it up that way, and that's just here in the States. There might be other releases available over in the UK or Australia, where it was released on Region 4 with The Curse of Frankenstein and The Mummy. Six dollars for those Frankenstein movies is totally worth it. Oh, yeah. That's the nice thing. <laughs> Even though they're not on Blu-ray and we can lament the fact that they're not on Blu-ray, the nice thing is, is that because they're available as these joint releases, they're affordable. <laughs> and they yeah. look good. I mean, they don't look like bad prints. The only bad print out there of a Hammer film is really The Satanic Brides of Dracula or The Satanic Rites of Dracula. I think it's called Dracula and His Brides on the Mill Creek set. Because it's a public yeah. domain, so there's a lot of prints of that one out there. But the rest of them, they're pretty decent prints. Anything else we want to say about Horror of Dracula before we wrap this thing up? No, I think we've said all that needs to be said. Yes, I Go agree. Go see the film, track it down, buy it, rent it, watch it, love it. Yes, it's a good. <laughs> and if you're if you're not totally familiar with Hammer, only one or two movies, this is a good place to uh, sink your teeth in. Pun intended. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man. Well, I think. This has been a fun episode. I've had a lot of fun talking about Hammer Films with you guys, and I love that we finally have an opportunity to talk about something non-zombie. Yes. <laughs> kind of focus our attention on something uh, that we all love. So this has been fun. Indeed. Next month, we're going to look at the first gothic horror film that we did, The Curse of Frankenstein. More Peter Yay. Cushing. Yes. <laughs> like to thank you again for listening to 1951 down place you can find us online at www.1951downplace.com and that's 1951downplace.com at our website you can find out more information about our hosts as well as find links to our amazon store where you can pick up books and reference materials regarding hammer films you'll also find show notes to every one of our episodes over there where we'll list all the references and all the links that we talk about in each episode of the show if you have any feedback for the show, you can email us at podcast at 1951downplace.com or call us at our voicemail line at 765-203-1951. You can find us on Twitter at 1951downplace or you can find us on Facebook where you can hit the like button. For Scott and Casey, I'm Derek. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you guys again at the end of next month. <laughs>